Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mike's in Cash podcast. Today, I'm interviewing my good friend Kyle Hunt. First met, he had 230 followers. He runs an eight-figure brand. He runs an eight-figure agency and has invested in six DTC brands in the last year. Kyle, would you mind introducing yourself, telling people a little bit about what you do? Do I need an introduction after that? I don't know. That was pretty good. You know, my name is Kyle Hunt. I'm the partner. Uh, and COO at Weekend Digital, where we are a growth agency, and we help um, eight-figure brands and multi-seven-figure brands scale and exit. I'm also the co-founder of Weekend Investments, uh, where we invest in D2C brands for the same purpose to help them scale and exit. And I'm also a brand owner myself, um, and currently own uh, a brand called Family Gifts Co. That's done about 30 million in total revenue. Um, so a lot on my plate, but it's all fun stuff. Good stuff. And he tweets. Imagine and that. I tweet, God, too much of a masochist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this is actually the second time we recorded this podcast because we had serious connection issues last time. But uh, one of the stories that I really liked when we uh, last met was how Family Gifts Co came to be, the rise and fall of it. So let's just start with it. What's the story behind it? Yeah. So I started Family Gifts Co in October of 2019. Um, It's essentially a, a print-on-demand brand. For those of you don't, who don't know, print-on-demand is very similar to dropshipping, but we dropship from the U.S., so we use USA suppliers, and we don't hold any physical inventory. And whenever an order comes in, they print the order for us, and then they ship it directly to our customers. Um, and I started that in October of 2019, and we did about half a million of revenue in those last three months of 2019, which is pretty good for a brand-new company. Um, and then during 2020, we had a miraculous year, Um, we were one of the really big beneficiaries of the COVID bump, if you were to call it that, um, during late 2020. And we ended up scaling to over $27 million in revenue in 2020. Um, it was an insane year. We grew a lot. Uh, had a lot of very expensive lessons <laughs> during that growth. Um, and Family Gusco is still a thing. Uh, we had a really terrible Christmas delivery issue during 2020 that I'm, I'm sure JK is going to have me talk about later. Um, that pretty much blew up the brand and almost made it go bankrupt. Um, luckily, that did not happen, and it still survived. Um, but it's been a great learning experience, and it's been able to catapult me to where I'm at today with the experiences that I had. Yeah, and when you say it blew up, it did not blow up in the right <laughs> way. It blew up in the right Well, it did blow up in the right way, and then it blew up in the wrong way. Yeah, let's talk about the wrong way. That's the fun part. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's fun for the outsiders, um, not, not for me. Yeah. So... Um, During, during Christmas of 2020, if you think about it, this was like peak COVID. Um, a lot of states were still, still shut down, like California and New York, I think, were still shut down. So for us, it was a great time of year. We, we sell family gifts, as the name implies, um, and our typical product is a, a canvas print that goes for about $100. Bucks. Um, and since people couldn't go buy gifts at Walmart or Target or whatever for, for Christmas, they bought a lot of gifts from our store, which was, which was great for sales volume. Um, But we made a, a fatal mistake, and that mistake was that we only had one main supplier. Um, we had a couple suppliers that were redundancies, but they weren't really anything meaningful. Uh, and our main supplier <clears throat> basically uh, killed us. So on December 6th, we had uh, thousands of customers message our email team that they hadn't received their order yet because they got an email saying, hey, if you haven't gotten your order within 14 days of delivery, please contact us. Um, and so they did. And it was uh, 
definitely surprising to us, and we looked into the issue, and then actually took us a day or two to figure out what happened. But essentially what happened is our main supplier, uh, who had about $2 million worth of inventory they were supposed to deliver before Christmas, um, lost that shipment. Um, it, was, it was probably stolen because, again, COVID 2020, these were essentially like lumber, uh, and lumber was worth its weight in gold back then. So we had uh, $2 million worth of inventory to fulfill, and we had nobody to fulfill it. So we had to let all of our customers know that they weren't going to be receiving their orders until January, uh, some potentially February. And as you can imagine, Christmas is a super time-sensitive uh, time for people, especially during COVID when people don't really see their family members too often. Um, so we ended up having to refund most of the money that we'd made during 2020, um, and we even went negative at, at some point. Um, and it was pretty much like the worst three months of my life between December 6th um, and March. Um, that refund, like we literally went from having like $3 million in the bank account to being negative in less than 60 days. Um, it was like the, the craziest thing and super depressing for, for me, as you can imagine. Um, and, it, you know, luckily we were able to dig ourselves out of the hole. Uh, we refunded everybody as like we were supposed to. Um, we, we continue to scale the brand, albeit at a much smaller level. Um, but it was not a, not a fun experience, to say the least. Uh, and definitely the big lesson learned there was always have multiple suppliers and multiple redundancies for anything that can go wrong in your company. What was it like when you realized, like, man, Abuelita's not getting her Christmas gift, and it's oh, our fault? Yeah, like or I felt... the supplier's fault? Yeah, I mean, I felt horrible for all of our customers. Um, you know, like nobody wants to be that person who's like, I got you a gift, but it didn't arrive. It's like the worst feeling ever. Um, and our customers certainly did not appreciate it. Um, I got some death threats from people who didn't get their Christmas gift on time. I was messaged like dozens of times a day on LinkedIn and, and um, a lot of social media that I ended up having to turn on private because of the, <laughs> the volume. Um, you know, we had like 5,000 customer service tickets coming in a day at one point. Um, which we were not staffed for, so we had to go out and we hired pretty much half the Philippines to respond to, to emails. Um, so it was, a, it was a super crazy time. Um, and, and again, like for me, um, I felt terrible about the whole thing. Um, and there's, like, there was literally nothing we could have done about it. Um, the other facilities that we looked at, like one had two, three shifts and two of the shifts caught COVID. Um, and all the other suppliers would have bankrupted us because their pricing wasn't in line with what we needed. You create content for brands, don't you? Yeah, we do uh, creative content for brands like videography and photography. Um, and we have a pretty large creative studio in um, Sacramento. Awesome. The other day I was reading TikTok kind of people and they mm -hmm. said that likes and cash on Twitter, they, there's like kind of this movement also on TikTok as in, yeah, you're your TikTok go, got viral, but it didn't make you any money. So what's the distinction between content, specifically maybe in D2C, that sells and content that doesn't? Yeah, I think that the, it's an exact parallel, actually. Um, there's awareness campaigns, you could call it, where you're just trying to build a brand name and where you get a lot of likes, um, a lot of engagements, but they don't really convert. And then there's direct response type of ads that you can create, which are made for conversions and have an offer, they have a call to action, um, which is really what we focus on. Uh, most seven and eight figure brands don't really have a budget for uh, awareness um, and it doesn't really make sense for them. 
but the brands we work with all focus on direct response type ads to get people to do a specific action to, to purchase their products um, and to scale it. When you have like a multi eight figure brand um, at that point, it makes sense to build out a budget for it. Um, but until then, most of your budget should be focused on one goal and that's converting people into your funnel and then selling them on shit. So it's literally the same exact thing. Um, if you're on Twitter or if you're on TikTok or if you're on Facebook. Cool. How does the content differ? Um, I think it's the, the, the angles that you use. Um, and again, having an offer and having a call to action. If you're just creating content to, to build awareness, there's no real offer, right? It's more uh, a life in the day of, um, or it's more telling about your company or, or brand building. Um, versus if you have a product that you're trying to actually sell, like you're going to have an actual offer in the creative, you're going to have a, um, a purpose that's conversion focused for that creative, um, not just around general like brand awareness and knowing, knowing who I am. Um, it's if I were to create an ad saying, Hey, I'm Kyle Hunt and I do this something really well versus, Hey, I'm Kyle Hunt. You should buy this because we do this really well. So one is focused and um, conversion focused, and the other is more just, hey, this is what we do and like why we do it. Do brands sometimes ever tell you like, man, like we're not building awareness. This is, this is too direct. Does that happen? Um, not really. The, the biggest actually pushback that, that a lot of um, agencies or, or growth partners get is more so around, um, <clears throat> does this fit in with my brand? Um, and especially on the, the smaller brands, we'll get this a lot. We're like, Hey, this doesn't really quite match our brand. And it's like, well, you don't even really have a brand yet. You've done $2 million in year in revenue. You don't even know what your real customer voice is. Um, you don't even really know, like you've never paid an agency to actually, or, or someone internal to like build out what your uh, archetypes are or what your, um, uh, branding should be. So I think that's a, a more typical argument is that, um, some brands more want you to do things that are more brand like, but a lot of those things also don't convert. Um, so there is that dynamic back and forth a lot with a lot of agencies. Um, we actually don't get it as much as a lot of other agencies because what we do when brands onboard is we actually do a full branding audit, um, which most of them have never done before. And it's included in, in one of our top packages. Um, so we'll actually run that brand audit for them and, and give it to them based on our observations of their brands. So, so we don't get that luckily as much as a lot of agencies do. Uh, but until we did that, we had that concern a lot. Yeah. So when a brand comes to you, what problems do you usually see? There's, there's a lot. Um, I think the biggest challenge that most brands come to us, uh, have is that they had a really spectacular 2020, um, 2021 might've been okay. Uh, but they didn't make tough decisions from an operational expense standpoint that they should have. Um, and their OPEX is like 2020, even though revenue has dropped or remained stable. That's probably like the number one challenge that we see is, is OPEX is extremely high still. Um, and, you know, if we're looking at 2023, like it's very likely that a recession will get worse, right? Probably not going to get better. Um, so OPEX should also drop, but a lot of brands have just been extremely hesitant for whatever reasons, right? Whether it's people that they care about or people that they think they need in their brand um, or software, whatever. Um, but that's uh, by far the number one issue we see is like OPEX is out of control in some of these uh, larger eight figure, or even smaller seven figure brands too. Okay. Dude, I, I need to ask about your $100,000 uh, that you made recently. So 
full disclaimer is uh, these were two clients that came from LinkedIn, right? Not Twitter, mm -hmm. correct? Correct. Well, so, so yes and no. So yeah. it was Twitter content that I just copied and pasted through Taplio, which is a, an, another app, um, and just posted it on LinkedIn. And then we had we got two clients from that uh, completely inbound, which was pretty amazing. It was inbound? I thought it was outbound. Um, well, they – so, okay. So you're right. Uh, they messaged my on my post, and then I uh, DM'd them because they liked and commented on my post. So technically outbound. But I guess they raised their hand and commented on the post. Yeah, I guess so. One one big one I get all the time uh, when I work with e-com guys mm -hmm. or people who sell services to e-com stores. It's, man, everybody I'm following or everybody in the e-com space on Twitter, they don't have e-com stores following them. It's other e-com agencies. Mm -hmm. Do you... Do you have any advice maybe for people who want to find these e-com stores, whether it be Twitter, whether it be LinkedIn or any other sources, where can they find e-com stores that can pay them for their service? Yeah, that's actually a challenge for me too. So I'm not sure uh, that I'm the best person to, to answer that question. Um, like what we typically do is we'll, uh, anyone who likes my content on Twitter will, will DM. Anyone who likes my or content or comments on my content on LinkedIn will DM. Um, and a lot of those happen to be e-commerce brand owners, but for strictly like outbound DMing, trying to find people has actually been a really big challenge for me. Um, so J JK, if you could tell me how to fix that, I'd actually really like that. <laughs> I've actually been thinking about it a lot. The guy that I know gets a bunch of inbound from e-commerce stores is Kevil, mm -hmm. uh, uh, SEO Kevil. SEO, yeah. And yeah, he talks very weirdly a lot about what other agencies do wrong, like how they're lying to you, right? It's not just about buying backlinks. I mean, he tells you how most agencies are lying to you, mm -hmm. which reminds me of one of your tweets. You said something around like, oh, you want to get your email marketing attributable revenue to 100%? Just turn off everything else. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, then you're at 100%. <laughs> Super simple. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, want to talk about maybe some lies agency owners tell that are kind of red flags when stores see it. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, there's the same marketers ruin everything, right? Um, which is probably true. And I think that's the same thing for uh, agencies and that a lot of them, the typical agency will overpromise and, and under deliver. Um, you know, when agencies first started, it was probably cool to say, hey, we're going to like 50% increase your revenue. And then it, and then two months later, like someone saw them like, oh, no, we need to like double people's revenue. And now everyone's claiming they're going to 10x your revenue, right? So there, I think that's like the typical agency lie is that, the, hey, we're going to come in and, and 10x your revenue. Um, like in reality, there's very few situations where anybody is coming into any one store and in two to three weeks making a huge impact that's going to change the trajectory of the company. Um, like, for instance, if Jeff Bezos, one of the richest men in the world, or Elon Musk, richest man in the world, were to come into one of our brands, like there's no changes being made in 30 to 60 days that are going to substantially impact the the trajectory trajectory of that company, right? So things take time, and I think that's probably the biggest lie that agencies tell you is like, oh, we're just going to come in, we're going to change this structure here, and immediately it's going to have an impact. When it's like, well, no, you really have to take a look at history um, and make tiny changes that are going to eventually have a large impact. And certainly there's things you can come into where you can take a look at a business and see what the main constraints are. Maybe it's uh, creative, maybe it's AOV, maybe it's conversion rate and make those and, and, and um, test to make those changes. 
But um, I think the biggest lies are like, hey, we're going to make this substantial impact. And it's going to be in this short amount of time. And then we'll have case studies supporting it. But it's like, those are case studies for a reason because those are the best thing that that agency has ever done. It's not typical results. Um, yeah. So I think those two are probably the biggest lie. I, I think that another big lie that agencies also say um, is um, like that they're full service so that they're going to do everything for you. Um, when in reality, it's like there's still a lot of things that the business owner needs to do, even if you're a full service agency trying to support a business owner. Like the full service agency is not going to be a CMO for you. They're not going to run your entire marketing business uh, even though they might position themselves like that, in reality, there still needs to be someone on the brand side that's, that's connected and uh, making decisions. So I think that's another uh, another lie. Uh, and then I think that probably the last lie that agency owners tell e-commerce brand owners that like, like hey, the agency is, world is tough um, and e-commerce is, is easy. Uh, e-commerce is extremely difficult having owned multiple e-commerce stores. Like you have to learn dozens of skills just to be par at it, just to be average at it. Um, and you have to spend a lot of time on the on the brand to get it to work, and a lot of testing and a lot of consumer interactions. Um, cash flow is not great with e-commerce brands typically. Um, and what I mean that what I mean by that is you can be super profitable from a PL basis if you're to take a look at like a trailing twelve PL, and you can see you have a ten million dollar brand and you made 10 percent net, so you made a million dollars. But what you don't see is that seven hundred fifty thousand dollars of that million dollars has been invested on the balance sheet for inventory for next year. So maybe that brand only took home $250,000 net, right? So e-commerce, um, unless you're a multi-eight-figure brand or an eight-figure brand with a really great cash conversion cycle, uh, meaning you pay for your inventory um, after you sell it, you're probably not bringing home that much money until you have some sort of exit event and sell the asset. So I think that um, agency owners kind of tell people how easy e-commerce is and how difficult the agency space is when um, you know, having a seven-figure agency is a lot easier than having a seven-figure e-commerce brand. Yeah. Why, why did you decide to not just be an agency, but also partner up with people? Is, is there something of this going on? Yeah, so I actually never wanted to be a part of an agency. Uh, it was not in my grand master plan at all. I wanted to, uh, after Family Gifts Co. exploded, my plan was to invest in assets, uh, scale assets, sell assets. And that was it, basically mergers and acquisitions. Um, but the opportunity when I met Tom and Brandon, who are my business partners at Weekend Digital, um, was, was pretty apparent that they had what I lacked, which was deal flow. Like they're consistently talking to really great seven and eight figure brands, which is what we were looking, I was looking to acquire at the time. Um, so it just kind of came where it's like, hey, we have this agency that has all the deal flow that you want. The agency also happens to make money. And like for those of you that own e-commerce businesses, agencies are cash flow machines, like 20 to 30% net take home, no inventory, a lot of people problems. Yes. Like they are, they're cash machines. Um, so I was like, well, actually it's a pretty good idea to own an agency because now we can cash flow some of the investments that we invest in as well. We have the deal flow and now we also have the team to come in to scale the assets to eventually sell and exit it. Um, so the more that I looked at it, the more I saw it kind of come full circle where the whole system really supports itself. Um, and I thought that was really smart and it made sense. So I di fair. didn't intend on it, but it, looking at it, it actually made sense. When, when you talk about that, it reminds me of somebody else on in, in e-com it's uh, chase, but he does it Twitter chase diamond. Mm -hmm. He takes equity in this word. I don't know if it's equity, rapture or, or phantom equity, but 
what he does is he partners up with these kind of products like triple whale mm -hmm. takes a percentage of it and not only helps them but he also pushes it with his twitter account right so you kind of get both sides of it you get the money and you also get the offside if you ever want to sell it yep you know yeah so so that's like i would call it content for equity um which is going to become a lot more popular as we have creators that have really large audiences that are tailored to um tailored to your tailored to whatever products you're selling um, I was talking to Nick Abraham previously, um, really big in the Twitter space as well, the cold email space, and he does a lot of the same things. Uh, we actually do the same thing with weekend investments as well, is we'll find really great brands that we want to invest in, but it's not purely cash. It's also uh, what's probably more important to them, which is they need um, the team to scale and exit, right, which they currently don't have, and they need like the resources and um, intellectual capital to scale and exit that they currently don't, currently don't have. So uh, most of our deals for e-commerce investments are some sort of service for equity as well. Um, so it's not just like purely cash investment. It's because like there's actually more cash right now on the sidelines than there's ever been in the history of the world. There's more dry powder out there for private equity, venture capital, angel investors. Like there's trillions of dollars out there. So finding cash is actually super easy right now. It's like finding the team and the intellectual capital to scale with an exit that's much more difficult, which is what we provide. Just when you're talking, I see there's so many different skills involved, just from the lower levels, like knowing all the integrations. Dude, it's a lot. <laughs> and then the agency world, and then startup, and then pitching, and then equity. Like, was it a challenge learning like such a wide range of skills to you? I mean, I'm still learning it. So, uh, so yes, I, I would also say that I have the benefit of having two really amazing business partners who are pretty much the best in the world at what they do. Um, Tom is one of the most effective communicators and salespeople that I've ever met in my entire life. And Brandon is just a, a mastermind CMO and digital marketer that could take any brands that's put in front of them and scale the shit out of it. Um, so I'm pretty lucky in that I don't have to master all these things. I have to be good at a few things um, and then let my business partners and our team you know, handle the rest. Did you say Tom is the master communicator? Yes. So what makes Tom so good? Because on Twitter, you're in the business of communicating your ideas to everybody, you know, like that's what you need to do. You need to say one thing a thousand different ways without getting tired of it. You know? Yeah. So I'm very interested in what makes you say he's a good communicator. So Tom has spent the last 15 years in sales and like building sales teams. Um, so he has the time and skill sets of being a great salesperson. Um, and he also does a very good job of finding out exactly what you want and then figure out a way to give that to you. So we're talking about like equity in these, these companies and service for equity. A lot of it is Tom trying to figure out like what that person wants, what's their ultimate goal and figuring out some way to create a win-win scenario for both of us where we both can feel really good about the outcome if it happens. Um, and that's like an entire sales mindset. I, I'm more like operations focused. Um, I do not have that skill because I have not been in sales for 15 years. If I was in sales for 15 years, I'd probably have it, but I don't. Um, so he just has like a really uncanny ability to figure out what people want and then create a deal or create a structure for them to get what they want. Um, and it's funny because when I joined Weekend Digital, that's literally how he approached compensation with every employee as well. He's like, figure out what they want and then give it to them. And I'm like, dude, like that's not how we can sustainably like scale an agency where we have every like everybody knows each other's salary. Not that we tell people, but like it just happens in companies. People find out because they talk and they're friends or whatever. 
So I'm like, you have to make things not necessarily equal, but at least equitable um, and like have a standard for things and not just like these one-off deals here or there because it's not really scalable. Um, so it's kind of funny that it translated also into employee salaries at our company. Um, but yeah, just a master dealsman and super creative at finding ways to, to make both parties win. I love that. It, when you first enroll in Tutu Clients, something I do is I check out your offer and I see if there's anything that maybe I can tweak or improve, right? And when I saw yours, I remember your VSL. It was this dude that said, if I don't get you this result, I'll pay you $60,000. Yeah. Is it 60? Yeah, 60. Yeah. How do you come up with dude, that? Dude, Tom, he, he's really great at uh, creative things like coming up with shit like that. It's really, it's really amazing. So if you've read um, Traction by Gina Wickman, uh, or heard about EOS, the entrepreneur operating system. And there's like half a dozen other systems out there now. Um, there's a dynamic called the visionary integrator relationship. And in most successful organizations, they have that organization, right? So um, in Apple, you had Steve Wozniak, who was the integrator, but you also had Steve Jobs, who was the visionary. Um, same thing in Disney, you had Walt Disney, who was the visionary, and you had his brother, who was the integrator. And a lot of really great organizations have that. And um, an organization, Tom, is by far the visionary who is just like the idea machine. Um, every single day he comes up with new ideas. Like literally every single day he will have new ideas. And that's his job. Uh, and I'm the integrator. And my job is to tell him no on 99% of the stuff, except for the 1% of stuff that I think makes sense for our business. So um, he's just an idea generator like to the max. So <laughs> he, he does all that creative stuff. Um, I just help put it into reality. Dude, I like it. When, so our, our role, I kind of had to like tone down my ego and tweet hunter mm -hmm. is that I very quickly realized I was not going to be CEO. You know, that, that was just not my thing. I was going to be the marketing, yeah. the CMO. And like when we said right now, you said Steve Jobs and then people mentioned Wozniak. Uh, yeah. Wozniak. And then you say like Walt Disney and you're like, uh, and his brother, yeah. right? I don't know who his brother is. Was <clears throat> you, because you are an entrepreneur and you're like a go-getter, you're trying to do all these things. Was it kind of, how was it kind of settling in that role as maybe I'm not going to be the face, I'm going to be the operator? Um, so this is really the first time that I've been an operator in a business. And I did not want it at first. Um, <laughs> so I co-founded Weekend Investments with them in... August of 2021. Uh, and it wasn't until three or four months later in January when I joined Weekend Digital. Um, I was co-founder and basically did everything for Weekend Investments. And like, that's how I wanted to do things. Um, it wasn't until he's like, hey, we need help on the agency side. He's like, you're the most structured person that I know. I want you to be our COO. And I'm like, I don't really think that I'm COO material. Like, I don't really, maybe I'm structured but like not as structured as, for instance, like my wife, who is a, a VP at a large company. Um, and he's like, well, you're 10 times structured than we are. So you're going to be better than us at it no matter what. Um, but as I've been growing in this role for pretty much the past year, I actually really like it and I really enjoy it. Uh, Tom loves to do conferences and loves to be the face of the business. Um, I do them because I have to, uh, <laughs> because it helps bring, build our brand. Um, but I actually like being in the background more than I like being in the, in the foreground. So I'm, I'm totally cool with it and I uh, prefer this. Interesting. Is, 
and maybe I'm overstepping here, maybe I don't know, but does your relationship maybe work a little bit like the Alex Layla relationship? Like you guys are both go-getters. You guys are both trying to accomplish big things. Is that kind of how it works? Yeah, it's, it's very similar. And that's actually how a typical integrator uh, visionary uh, relationship does work. This is just, we see it in real time because we see these people posting on YouTube, but it's very similar to that. Obviously we're not married uh, or sexually attracted to each other, but <laughs> very similar. I get it. Maybe, maybe it's because you're not using your HD camera this that's, time. That's you're true. using your phone camera. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> there you go, Tom. Yeah, you never know. I don't right? know. He's a handsome guy, but. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right. One of my favorite tweets of yours was when you, when you posted a, a maze, right? Mm-hmm. So you said, when a key mindset shift you had to do is to realize that sometimes you don't need to go inside the maze because maybe everything's a yeah. dead end. You need to realize there is no maze in in the first place. And I really like the way you think about kind of those mental models. Do you want to expand a little bit on those? Yeah. So um, there's a basically just to explain it a little bit further. There's a picture of a maze, uh, and the maze actually can't be solved. It's it's uh, it's kind of frustrating. Um, but I put it out there, and I was like, hey, try and solve this maze in 10 seconds, 20 seconds. See how far you can get. The maze is literally unsolvable. But the whole point of it is like you don't need to go through the maze to get to the end. You can go around it. And I think we're all conditioned from a really early age to like color in the lines, right? And to, uh, to conform um, when in reality, business is the exact opposite of that. Business is being creative and finding creative solutions um, and thinking outside of the box. And my job now is literally like how to think outside the box. Um, so again, I think it's like how to be super creative consistently um, and not think what other people think, because if you think what they think and do what they do, then you're going to get the same result, which is typically mediocre. Love it. And the other one in that thread that caught my attention is you do 80, 20, but then you mentioned an assistant allowed you to go to four sixty four. Uh, do you want to talk about yeah, that? So I'm sure everybody's heard of 80, 20 Pareto principle, very well known. Um, but what they don't know is if you take that one step further, right? If you take the top 20% of your 80%, uh, you get to your 64% for, or 464, whichever way you like. It's, it's, it's easier to say 464, but it's technically 64.4. But basically what it means is that uh, 4% of your input is going to generate 64% of your output, right? And that's even more astounding than 20% of your input is going to generate 4% of your output. And the way that I mentioned in the thread is relative to um, customer acquisition and LTV. So like if you're a, if you have a Shopify store or a Shopify brand, they have a really amazing report uh, called the customer loyalty report where you can see who all your top customers are. And it's like, that is your 4%. That is the literal, all the LTV of your entire company. So you need to focus ruthlessly on those customers, figure out who they are, why they bought, how you can get them to buy, interview them one-on-one. I'm a huge proponent of individual customer interviews um, as well as surveys. Um, and like, but that's literally like every, every, uh, landing page you build, every ad you create, you need to have that customer in mind. Cause that person is literally supporting your entire business. Um, but if we think about it, even outside of Shopify, just from a calendar standpoint, like literally most of the shit on your calendar is not useful. It's not driving your result. It's there and it's busy work and it might be producing a result, but it's not driving your result. So your job as a business person is to find those one, two, three super important things that you're supposed to be doing every single day and do that every single day and not do all the other shit, delay it as long as you can or give it to a VA or give it to someone else in your organization, but focus on those one to three needle movers 
And like literally that's it. Um, and I think that's the biggest challenge that most business people in general have. Um, definitely the biggest challenge of a lot of the e-commerce brand owners that we speak to is that they have too many responsibilities and too many things on their plate when they need to do the opposite. They need to just focus on the real need movers, which are again, like those 4% of things that are going to get 64% of the results. How do you come up with that and how do you implement it in, in your job? Cause you're a busy dude, man. Like eight figure band, eight figure agency, six D2C brands you invested in. How do you implement that in your life? Yeah. So it starts with taking an inventory of everything that you do on a weekly basis and then removing most of it. Um, if you literally for one week, just like put in your calendar or write down a sheet of paper, exactly what you do. Um, and then take it, take that, but then separately think about it from a first principle standpoint, what are the most impactful things that I can do to either, uh, impact the business or to remove a bottleneck in the business? Those are the only activities you should be focused on and the rest should be subbed out to your team. So it's taking inventory, thinking about it from first principles, what's the most important things, and then just removing all the other stuff. And it's easier said than done because you're always going to have fires. You're always going to have things that, that happen. But um, as long as you're putting time in your calendar to really focus on those main meta movers, you're going to be more successful than most people because you've actually done the work to do it. Do you like set up systems once and then let them run? Or is that something you revisit often to make sure it's done? Yeah, right? it's a system of continual improvement. Once you fix one bottleneck in your business or in your life or whatever, it's going to spur other bottlenecks that you're going to have to fix. It's going to spur other things that you have to focus on as well. So there's never a set it and forget it mentality in anything that we do. Um, and if it is, you're going to like wish that you had gone back and checked things consistently because it's just going to blow up. So you always have to, uh, you always have to improve. You always have to go back and see, did this get the result that I want or not? Uh, if not, why? And then how can we get the result? Um, or you're really not going to be optimal. I love it. Well, I'm just glad you came here to this podcast and not your assistant. Why do you tell them what to say? Uh, I really appreciate having me on this and I really enjoy our time together. And um, if you guys are not in tweets and clients, you need to talk to JK and get in here. I uh, appreciate it. I appreciate it, man. Uh, yeah, we're, we're coming close on the hour, but do you want to tell people where can they find you and why should they? Yeah, so you can find me uh, on Twitter at HuntKyle. Um, you can email me, Kyle, at WeekendDigital.com if you want. Uh, and if you're a seven- or eight-figure DTC brand or e-commerce brand and you're looking to scale and exit in the next couple of years, I'd love to talk to you and add some value to you and see how we can help you. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you for being here, man. I appreciate Thanks, it. Okay.